This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Greetings, everyone around the world. Laszlo Montgomery here once again with another China History Podcast episode. We're going to explore the Shang Dynasty today. If the Xia Dynasty, which we discussed in the last episode, was a legendary dynasty, then we can call the Shang a semi-legendary dynasty that we know for sure existed. Let me just mention first, this is a re-recording of an old episode from 2010. I know from so many years of emails that a lot of you start at the beginning of the CHP back catalog and listen to the earliest episodes first. Well, I'm going to admit, way back then, the CHP was meant to be a much shorter show that didn't delve too deeply into the subjects presented. And then sometime around 2014 or 2015, the show began to go through a transformation, including better sound recording. So this is a re-recording, all edited and enhanced. There's a lot more to fix up in these early shows, and I'll get to everything in time. Anyway, the Xia and the Shang have a lot in common. They both have legendary beginnings that start with a virtuous and great leader who is beloved by the people. Then you have the succession and then a lot of blank spots. And then in the end, you have a wicked tyrant who was hated by the people and was ultimately overthrown. And as I mentioned at the end of last episode, there was usually some black-hearted woman standing behind him, facilitating an ignoble end of the dynasty. I'm jumping way ahead, but just trying to show you how both dynasties had similar rises and falls. Unlike the Xia, which made a slow and steady march downhill, the Shang had a great revival two-thirds of the way into the dynasty, and it's really the last couple centuries of the Shang that are the most important. The Shang definitely has a lot more to hang on to than the Xia. Even to this day, the best historiographers, archaeologists, and scientists China has to offer are still analyzing the treasure trove of Shang artifacts that continue to be unearthed even to this day. Already, 11 palaces have been discovered in and around Anyang in Henan province. Believe it or not, it was only in the 20th century that we learned this dynasty actually existed. Sima Qian wrote all about the Shang in his Shi Qi, or Records of the Grand Historian. So it's not like we never heard of the Shang before. In his great work, Sima Qian spoke at length about the Shang period and even enumerated all the Shang kings in a single list, and more about that later. Like the preceding Xia dynasty, the start and finish dates of the Shang are open to debate. In 1996, the China government launched the Xia Shangzhou Duan Dai Gongcheng, or a chronology report on the Xia Shangzhou to set down a more accurate time stamping for these first three Bronze Age dynasties. In November 2000, the results were announced and they pegged the Xia at 2070 to 1600 BC 
and the Shang was split up from 1600 to 1300 BC for the early Shang, and 1300 to 1046 BC for the late Shang. The Shang Dynasty ran during the middle of China's Bronze Age. In other faraway lands at this time, Egypt was already a mighty empire. It was the period of the great 18th Dynasty, the most famous in ancient Egyptian history. China's Shang Dynasty was concurrent with many of the most famous pharaohs like Tutankhamun and the Tutmoses, Hatshepsut, Akhenaten, and Nefertiti. The new kingdom in Egypt was just starting. The Shang period in China was also concurrent with the time when Moses of the Old Testament was born in Egypt in 1612 BC. This means it was also the time of Ramses I and II. This was just as the Xia was dying and the Shang was starting to rise. Biblical times over on the opposite end of Asia. Elsewhere in the world, the temple at Delphi was built in Greece. Mycenaean and Minoan culture was flourishing. 1149 BC would have been the time of the Trojan War. So as Chinese civilization was just starting to take shape and organize and consolidate, all these other civilizations were thriving and developing on separate continents, all independent of each other. Even in China, there was more civilization going on than simply the Shang, but it was only the Shang dynasty that left behind written records of their existence. In 1987, there was an exciting archaeological discovery in Sichuan near Chengdu. The place was called Sanxingdui, or Three Stars Mound. You can hear more about Sanxingdui from the CHP episode 276. Lots of artifacts were excavated, like beautiful jades and bronzes, attesting to a rather advanced people. But one thing they didn't leave behind was any written record of their history. Unlike the Shang peoples developing up around Henan, Hubei, Shandong, and northern Anhui, this civilization down in the Chengdu region had not yet developed a writing system. So be sure to Check out the later CHP episode on Sanxingdui, Jinsha, and Ancient Shu, CHP episode 276. Let's go with 1600 BC as the start of the Shang Dynasty. Like the Xia Dynasty founder, Yu the Great, the Shang also had a heroic founder. He came to be known as Cheng Tang. He was named Zi Lu. His ancestor had helped Yu the Great tame the Yellow River floods way back when his family was given the land of Shang as a reward. And as Sima Qian wrote, after Yu tamed the floods, he had nine cauldrons cast in the style of a ding, a three-legged ritual bronze vessel. That's one of the icons of China's Bronze Age dynasties. Nine of these dings, one for each of the nine provinces. These were sacred objects, and contained the symbolic authority to rule. Well, after Cheng Tang defeated King Jie and put an end to the Xia, he took possession of these nine cauldrons, or Jiu Ding, and wherever the Shang capital was moved to, the sacred nine cauldrons went to. They ended up getting lost during the chaos of the Warring States period, but the nine cauldrons are an important part of this earliest time. 
Now, the time of Cheng Tang was already 14 generations later, and by this time, the Shang was already a rather powerful state in its own right. As I mentioned in the last episode, Cheng Tang defeated the wicked and evil King Jie at the Battle of Mingtiao. Cheng Tang founded the Shang Dynasty, and a drought struck almost immediately. After about seven years of suffering this drought, King Tang went before heaven and prostrated himself on the altar, presumably at some high temple, and reproached himself before heaven and offered to present himself as a sacrifice to Shangdi if he would only bring rain to end the drought-stricken land. Well, as the legend goes, it started to rain soon thereafter, and the farmers rejoiced, and Cheng Tang's reputation and, and esteem as a ruler and a hero skyrocketed. So Yu the Great, who founded the Xia Dynasty, he tamed the floods. Cheng Tang, who founded the Shang, he was able to get the heavens to rain down upon the land. There are similar stories, I'm sure, of other benevolent rulers in all the cultures around the world who also were associated with miraculous, life-saving events. The capital of the new Shang government was in present-day Zhengzhou, capital of Henan province. The capital of the Shang dynasty moved around a lot, about five times. And if you form a triangle between the cities of Zhengzhou, Anyang, and Luoyang, that covers the area where most of the Shang palaces and major cities have been excavated. It was after the 7th and final move to the capital at Yin in the 13th century BC when the Shang dynasty reached its apex. At the capital of Yin, present-day Anyang, Hunan province, 12 kings ruled over 255 years until the Shang period came to an end and was replaced by the Zhou dynasty. As I said, the Shang worshipped the god Shangdi. In Mandarin, the word for god is Shangdi. Shang means above, and Di is the emperor. So this deity was above the emperor, and the emperor, through the ruler's special relationship with all the ancestors, held particular closeness with Shangdi. However, Shangdi, the Shang supreme deity, was the main god among several. The Shang religion was not monotheistic by any stretch of the imagination. They were also very big on sacrificing animals. They also believed in ancestral worship and the afterlife, and for the royals at least, took tomb building and burial in general very seriously. Before we go through various vignettes from this dynastic period, Let's zero in on the four contributions to Chinese civilization that we can say came from the Shang period. These are the aspects of the Shang that really define the dynasty and what we most remember them for. First and foremost, writing is seen for the first time in Chinese history. More about this later. The second was the social organization of the country into a very stratified system where everybody had a place and the aristocrats and royal family stood at the apex of Shang society. All these nobles were beholden to the king, and they controlled the outlying areas too far from the capital and the king's everyday control. The priests had a dual role in Shang society. Not only were they entrusted with the job of performing all rituals and religious matters, they were also the bureaucrats of the kingdom and handled all the day-to-day -day affairs of the government. 
The third aspect that we can say defines the Shang is their mastery of bronze casting and their bronze making technological standard. A lot of Shang era artifacts survive to this day in museums and private collections around the world. Another specialty of the Shang was their use of bronze in the manufacture of effective weaponry, and this included everything from spears to chariots. In those days, bronze meant power, wealth, and luxury. It was only for those who lived at the imperial court or the aristocrats who had bronze in their daily life. Bronze wasn't anything that the peasants possessed or came in contact with. All these bronze objects were basically either one of two things. Bronze was used to make weapons or ceremonial vessels, never for common tools. I'm sure everyone knows this, but just in case, bronze is a metal alloy made up of mostly copper with tin or a number of other metals. You can imagine how much of this stuff has been dug up over the last century. In the final years of the Shang, especially during the Yin-Shang period, important events and records were inscribed or cast in the bronze ceremonial objects. The Shang people, because of their superior bronze-making technology, were able to make more effective weapons like spears, compound bows, and better horse-drawn chariots, and this made them the conquerors to beat of their time. Sima Qian wrote in the records of the Grand Historian, the Shi Qi, that there were a total of 30 Shang rulers covering roughly 600 years. Court officials belonged to a hereditary class of aristocrats. The core of the dynasty was located in the northern part of Hunan, and the crops of those days were millet, wheat, and barley. The Shang used the lunar calendar, or Yue Li, to date all the events of their time. Believe it or not, the same lunar calendar was used in China all the way up to the last century. They also developed a 12-month calendar with 365 and a quarter days. And the great civilizations developing around the world, yeah, pretty much all figured that one out on their own. Can you imagine, though, being the first person four, 5,000, maybe 6,000 years ago, actually keeping track over the period of 365 days, and being the first to understand the concept of a single year. In addition to this, the Shang also developed the decimal system and had already begun to develop sophistication with math and science. Well, let's get right to the whole bangers and mash here as far as the Shang is concerned. If he can say anything about these ancient Chinese who developed during the Shang period... They were the people who gave us Chinese characters. The legend has it that Chinese characters were invented during the time of the Yellow Emperor, around 2650 BC, by one of his officials, Tang Jie. He's the legendary creator of Chinese writing. But Tang Jie didn't leave any evidence of his creation. The Chinese of the Shang Dynasty, however, they did. The great story behind the discovery of the earliest Chinese characters is something right out of the last year of the 19th century. Now, I covered this subject in more detail in a standalone episode on the Shang Oracle Bones, but this incredible concatenation of events began in 1899 in and around the city of Anyang in Henan Province. All of a sudden, in a short period of time, 
these so-called longu started showing up. Long means dragon, and gu means bone. And these dragon bones were being dug up all over Anyang and the environs around the Huan River. Some of these dragon bones ended up in the hands of private Chinese antique collectors who were fascinated with the archaic-looking characters carved into the bones. Some of the bones ended up with practitioners of Chinese medicine who ground them up into powders, mixed them into compounds that were administered as Chinese medicine used to cure a variety of ailments. Among them was malaria. And these medicines derived from dragon bones were contained in all the Materia Medica, going back to Shen Nong's Ban Cao Jing. One day in 1899, the director of the Imperial College, Dr. Wang Yirong, was seeking relief from malaria. And he was given some of these dragon bones from a local apothecary. And he was given a prescription that instructed him how to grind the dragon bones up and how to consume them. And Dr. Wang's trained eye noticed all the inscriptions on these dragon bones. Now, up until this moment in our recent history, the Shang Dynasty was about as legendary as the Xia. There were a lot of stories and legends, and we had Sima Qian's account of that period. A lot of smoke, but never any fire. Well, Wang Yirong was able to trace these dragon bones to a village called Xiaotun, outside of the city of Anyang. By 1917, the noted scholar, philologist, and literatus Wang Guowei had deciphered the bone inscriptions, including the names of the Shang kings. And if only Sima Qian had lived to see that day. Because when the inscriptions concerning that chronological listing of all the Shang Dynasty kings were figured out, and they placed the results side by side with what Sima Qian had written in his Shi Ji, they matched perfectly. Well, once these discoveries were made and archaeologists figured out roughly where the Shang Kingdom was situated, they started pulling one treasure after another out of the ground. Tomb after tomb, bronze masterpiece after bronze masterpiece, and hundreds of thousands of shells and bones, all inscribed with ancient Chinese characters. And through decades of studying that goes on into our very day, the whole story of the Shang Dynasty and Shang society slowly revealed itself. And from this time onward, the Shang was no longer a legendary dynasty. From 1928 until the Japanese invaded China in 1937, they started excavating Yinxu, the name archaeologists had given for this site. This is where they discovered the royal palace, royal tombs, and a veritable treasure trove of these dragon bones that soon thereafter started to be called oracle bones. And this script that's inscribed in these oracle bones is called the Jiaku Wen, Oracle Bones Script. Oracle Bones made predictions about the future. For the most part, these were the scapulas or shoulder blades of a water buffalo or some kind of cattle. The second most prevalent method was using the shells of tortoises. The way it worked, these early characters would be carved into the bones or the shells in the form of questions. 
And on the opposite side, a number of small pits or holes were carved. And then into these little cracks or pits that they carved into the bones or shells, they inserted these thin, white-hot metal rods. And this heated metal would in turn cause the bones or shells to crack. And then the priests would interpret or divine these cracks and interpret them. And thus, the question was answered. Then the answer to the question was also carved into the same bone or shell. And taking it one step further, the actual outcome would also be carved by one scribe or another. And it was through studying these artifacts, and there were over a couple hundred thousand to look at, that the scientific community there had been able to piece together the story of the Shang. One after another, names of kings were confirmed, the style of government was revealed, battles from military history as well as religious beliefs were discovered. And in time, a fairly good understanding of Shang society was learned. And it was also from these bones that it was found that the Shang were constantly at war with outsiders from near and far. You see, eight or nine generations after Cheng Tang founded the dynasty, the Shang royal court had deteriorated into a never-ending battle between brothers and other relatives, always fighting for power at the top. Resources were wasted building palaces and pleasure domes where nobles lived in splendor and luxury. It was only when the 19th Shang king, Pan Geng, came to the throne that the Shang had a revival and reached its apex under King Wu Ding. Pan Geng, who ruled from 1290 to 1263 BC, was the ruler who moved the Shang capital to Yin, present-day Anyang, it wasn't a terribly popular move, and no one, common people included, wanted to leave their comfortable surroundings and start all over somewhere else. Nonetheless, that's what ended up happening, and Pan Geng is credited as the founder of the Yin Dynasty, or Yin Shang period, and for reviving the sinking ship that the Shang had become. He's mentioned in both the Bamboo Annals and the records of the Grand Historian, the two most important surviving texts that cover these most ancient centuries of China's history. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, I mentioned Yin Xu a little bit ago. The last part of the Shang Dynasty, as I mentioned, was where the dynasty reached its height of power and sophistication. The capital was located in the city of Yin in northern Hunan, close to the borders of Shanxi and Hebei. Xu means ruins, so Yin Xu means the ruins of Yin, and from this point on, the dynasty is called the Yin Shang, or sometimes just the Yin Dynasty. From the capital at Yin, 12 kings ruled for another 255 years. All of these artifacts being pulled from the ground came from the Yin period. We're somewhere near the beginning of the 14th century B.C. now. The Shang is in its golden age. 
One of the best preserved sites at Yinshu is the tomb of Fu Hao, or Lady Hao. Lady Hao was the wife of King Wu Ding, where the Yin Shang reached its greatest heights. Lady Hao was not only the wife of the king, she was a great military leader in her own right and led successful campaigns against some of the Shang enemies. Her tomb was discovered in the tumultuous year in China of 1976. In the winter of 1976, a few months after the death of Chairman Mao, the Fu Hao Mu was discovered. Mu means tomb in this case. So the Fu Hao tomb was discovered. Now, like King Tut in Egypt, Fu Hao's tomb had been discovered undisturbed. So for almost 28 centuries, the tomb's hidden location had eluded grave robbers. It was open to the public as an exhibit in 1999 in the Yinshu Museum in Anyang. It's definitely on my list of places to go. The Bronze Age Queen Fu Hao's tomb had been dated to about 1200 BC, and it was positively identified as Fu Hao's tomb by all the bronze inscriptions, or Jinwen, as these bronze inscriptions were called. Buried with this great queen and military leader were all kinds of jade and carved bone objects, things like arrowheads, hairpins, and other ornamental objects. There was a massive catch of Bronze artifacts like weapons, bells, knives, mirrors, statues of animals, real and mythical. They also uncovered stone objects, art made from ivory, and even 6,900 pieces of cowrie shells, the currency of its day. Found in the burial chamber of Queen Fuhao were the skeletal remains of six dogs and 16 humans, presumably slaves. It was already known at the time that the Shang period saw a degree of human sacrifices. The oracle bones uncovered at the site revealed that Fu Hao was the greatest military leader of her time. As I said, she was the wife of the 21st Shang king, Wu Ding. He led the Yin Shang dynasty at its peak. And as I said, again, the Yin period of the Shang was the high point of the entire Shang dynasty. The dynasty's fortunes will degrade from here on out, and the 58-year reign of Wu Ding is remembered as the Shang dynasty's finest hour. Before we finish up the Shang and the evil and wicked last king, let's look at Shang writing. Chinese characters first appear during this dynasty in both oracle bones and in these bronze ritual vessels. If anything was committed to paper or some other organic substrate— They've long disappeared. There's been anywhere from three to 5,000 characters that have been cataloged from all the findings by archaeologists. Having this ability to communicate and record information in writing gave the Shang rulers a very enhanced ability to rule. It really allowed the central authority to spread its wings out a little wider and directly control farther areas of the kingdom. Anyways, the amazing thing about this early Shang writing is that written Chinese today basically uses the same system they came up with over 2,000 years ago. The system of writing that uses a radical to give the character a general meaning or classification joined together with a phonetic symbol of some sort to indicate a sound is still used today. 
And the amazing thing about Chinese characters, ancient and modern, is that they're similar to Arabic numerals and that no matter how you pronounce them, the meaning is always the same. So Chinese writing first starts pairing between 1500 to 1200 BC. Writing was already in use for about a thousand years in the Indus River Valley civilization, and for almost a thousand years before that by the Egyptians. It was the Mesopotamian civilizations that were the earliest. Writing appeared in ancient Sumer as early as 3200 BC, a good 2,000 years before the Shang Oracle Bones. Well, all good things have to come to an end, and indeed, it came to a smashing and a violent conclusion for the Shang. Like the Xia before them, this dynasty also suffered from a tyrant who was remembered in infamy. The Xia had King Jie, the Shang had King Zhou, also known as Di Xin. Other than being credited as the creator of chopsticks, this king, Zhou Xin, went down in Chinese history as the worst king of all time. And in the 3,512 years from the start of the Shang to the fall of the last Qing emperor, there were some real stinkers in there. It's said that his name, Zhou, that's fourth tone, was a pejorative name given to him to show disrespect. The Zhou was the part of the saddle that was near the horse's rump or underside, and its main role was to keep the saddle from sliding forward. Anyway, its strategic location right under or near the horse's poop chute made it the likeliest part of the saddle to become soiled. So you can imagine how much they liked this guy if they gave him a name like that. Like Caligula, who was to follow him almost a hundred centuries later, Di Xin started off good. He supposedly had this amazing strength and was just a mountain of a man capable of all kinds of amazing feats. And this tyrannical ruler, like his kindred spirit, King Jie of Xia, had an evil woman behind the scenes, egging him on to do the most outrageous and detestable things. King Jie had the evil concubine Mo Xi, and Shang King Zhou had Da Ji, whose greatest pleasure was to watch the painful suffering of others. Now, Di Xin, or Zhou Xin, he did a lot of outrageous things on his own and at the behest of his sadistic wife. There was a book written during the Ming Dynasty, one of the later dynasties in China, that chronicles the period of the fall of the Shang. The book goes into all kinds of gruesome detail about Zhou Xin's exploits. It's called the Feng Shan Yan Yi, The Creation of the Gods. And two stories in particular sort of define this last king of Shang. These were the Jiu Rolin and the Pao Luo Zhixing. The Jiu Rolin, the alcohol pool and meat forest, was a place of debauchery that would have looked right at home in Bob Guccione's Caligula movie from 1979. A lake, or more likely a pool of some sort, was dug and filled with wine. This was the Jiu the wine pool. In the meat forest, well, that was located on a little island in the middle of the pool. And these trees were planted there, and meat skewers were hung from the branches. And this was the rolin, or meat forest. Presumably, these orgies would be held there, and they'd have unlimited wine to drink from the pool. And if, if 
they got hungry, they could snack on the meats hanging in the meat forest. No idea if it was Yang Rochoir or what it was. And before you go and say, oh, that couldn't be, in 1999, archaeologists discovered a one and a half meter deep pool among the Shang ruins, measuring 130 by 20 meters, which in my estimation, is the size of what the average wine pool might be. And it was discovered not far from Luoyang. But the topper of all toppers, the one that every source I read mentioned, was the Pao Luo Zhixing, or Cannon Burning Punishment. This grisly punishment was attributed to the wicked Queen Daji. He had this long bronze cylinder, like a cannon, and the inside of the cylinder would be filled with white-hot burning charcoal, and through the magic of physics and thermodynamics, the cannon itself would turn equally hot. Now, whoever it was that was being punished or who was being utilized as the source of amusement was made to embrace or press up against this searing hot piece of metal, and watching this gruesome exhibition amused Daji to no end. While the Shang King had his mind on matters of debauchery, Zhou Xin received word that a certain person named Ji Chang was growing in the esteem of the people and that various tribes loyal to the Shang were now doing it about face and declaring all their loyalty to this Ji Chang. And this, of course, is the future King Wen of Zhou. And Ji Chang dutifully reported in to Zhou Xin, who immediately threw him into prison. And during his period of incarceration, as the story goes... Ji Chang wrote the Yi Jing, or Book of Changes, that Confucius called the most important of all the classics. It was the ultimate guide to divination. This is all covered in uh, two chapters from the 18-part History of Chinese Philosophy series. Ji Chang, after seven years of imprisonment by Zhou Xin, was set free after the Shang King was given bribes and gifts of lots of gorgeous women and all kinds of delights. So Ji Chang was set free and at once began organizing all the various tribes and peoples. And this new military force poured out of the Wei River Valley from the west and swept into the Shang territory. And this all culminated in the Battle of Muye. And Zhou Xin, seeing he was finished, supposedly committed suicide, and his evil queen, Daji, she got beheaded. So all these antics, coupled with his ruthless and autocratic ways, had simply turned his own people against him. The mandate of heaven was not with King Zhou Xin, and it came to pass in early 1046 B.C., that King Wu of Zhou, along with the assistance of Jiang Ziya, Put an end to Shang King Zhou. Now there's a standalone episode on Jiang Ziya, CHP 258. He was a right-hand man to this Ji Chang that I've mentioned already several times. Ji Chang, of course, is the Zhou Dynasty founder, King Wen. And King Wu, he helped him get rid of the Shang and establish the Zhou Dynasty of this Ji family. At the Battle of Mu Ye... The last Shang King went down in defeat, and it's from this date that we have the start of the Zhou Dynasty, the last of China's Bronze Age dynasties. And once again, Muya is dated at 1046 BC, which is the start date of the Western Zhou Dynasty. 
We'll get more into Kings Wen and Wu and the Duke of Zhou, or Zhou Gong, in the next podcast when we look at the Zhou Dynasty. Again, another dynasty famous for its beautiful bronzes. Starting from the Zhou, Chinese culture really begins to get refined, and the stage is being set for the introduction of all the great Chinese philosophers. And so, once again, this is Laszlo Montgomery wishing everybody a fond and appreciative farewell from the city of Los Angeles, California. Join me next time, won't you, for another tasty morsel from the vast and sumptuous buffet of Chinese history.